Alright. Alright, Mark, today we're talking about a surprising take on pornography and lust from a pretty unexpected source. And we also got uh, why Christina P. from Your Mom's House podcast thinks that Leonardo DiCaprio's controversial dating approach is actually more humane than it seems. We're talking about how to actually be more successful than 99% of people. And we'll be asking the question, can life be made as effortless as a video game? Hmm. Sounds fun. Hope to get into it. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Man vs. World. I am your host, Mark Weppet, and I am joined, as always, by Pete. Pete, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. How are you, Mark? I'm doing pretty freaking fantastic. I think we got some great topics to cover today. So let's go ahead and jump into our first one here. What do we got? Yeah. So self, self-help self author and YouTuber Mark Manson, I'm not sure if he's involved in anything else, but that's yeah, how yeah. I know him. No, you know him for a subtle art of giving a F. Yeah. Um, I think he's wrote on, on uh, he's wrote a few more books. He's got a very popular blog and that sort of thing. He's been in the the male self help space slash general self help space for for a long time now. He's a he he writes some good he's stuff. He's an OG. Yeah, OG. Yeah. Well, anyway, he had a YouTube video out recently called "How to Actually Be More Successful Than Ninety Nine Percent of People," and uh, this is what he has to say. Let's check it out. There's been a bit of a meme with a bunch of videos coming out claiming that they make you more successful than 99% of people in the world. And it turns out it's all the same shit you hear in every other video. Have goals, be more disciplined, remove distractions, something called monk mode. Are we fucking serious right now, guys? Goals, guys, goals, that's what That's Bill gonna do it. Goals, that's what got him there, right? He had some goals. My mailman has goals. My housekeeper is disciplined. Everybody's trying to remove distractions. These things are not something that 99% of people don't do. And monk mode, by the way, have you looked at the most successful people in the world? There is nothing resembling monkish behavior among them. When it comes to success, the productivity hacks, the morning routines, most of this shit doesn't matter. See, when I started my business, every morning, I would wake up at about 11 a.m. and I'd get myself a Red Bull and some Reese's Cups. And then I would stay in bed for another two hours sitting on my laptop. I did this for three years and I built a six-figure business in my mid-20s doing it. So let's get into it. If you actually want to be... First, just side comment. A six-figure business is not more successful than 99% of people. Just just saying, but uh, let's, let's keep going. <laughs> more successful than 99% of people, you have to, one, have a contrarian idea, two, be correct about that idea, and three, execute on it massively. You have to disagree with everybody and then be right. And even if you happen to disagree with everybody and be right about it, you have to be willing to execute. The hardest part about achieving extreme success isn't the work. Anyone can put in the work. It's being a correct contrarian. It's the ability to adopt unpopular beliefs and then stick to them when people start making fun of you. So I think he's on to an important point here, but let's add a little bit of nuance to this because I think you know he's taking a very strong position for the sake of... Uh, having a contrarian idea, right? Well, it's like, let's start with that headline thing where it's like, oh, how to be some more successful than 99% of people. Watch my generic self-help information and give me millions of views, all right? Like, with that kind of thing, people aren't really looking to be more successful than 99% of people. Uh, at least most of them aren't. They're looking to just be better than where they're at, right? And to be better than where you're at, what he's saying is not applicable. And so it's like, the people who are putting that kind of clickbaity sort of stuff out there, in a lot of ways, they are delivering what their audience wants, right? They are delivering um, useful stuff because it's like, hey, if you have goals, you have some discipline and put in the work, yeah, you could probably make six figures. And that's, I mean, he proved that with his uh, <laughs> his little story there. It's like, you know, he ate a bunch of Reese's and Red Bull and, you know, he, I guess he executed on his business idea and then boom, he, he was making six figures. Whoop-de-doo. That puts you into like, I don't even know what, what income bracket, but it's not even the 90th percentile. Okay. Especially if you're making like a hundred K. 
but it's good. It's great. You know, and that's, that is what a lot of people want. And so it's like, you got to ask yourself, like, do you really want to be more successful than 99% of people? Um, I would say that most people actually don't give a crap about that. All right. Most people would be incredibly happy just being more successful than 70 or 80% of people. They want to be in that, you know, middle upper class, maybe, maybe even all the way up into the upper class. I say, say you want to be more successful than 95% of people. You can get there through execution, right? You just find yourself a, a, a career path that offers that ability. Not all career paths do. If we're talking primarily success, I guess, you know, we're, we're talking pretty much in the, the financial realm, I'm assuming, uh, maybe in the, the, the influential realm, potentially even. But up to 95%, like, you, can, you don't have to be a contrarian. You can actually... <laughs> You can actually be very successful if you take something that is completely standard and proven and a, a tried and true aspect of society and just execute on it better than other people are. All right. That's that's enough for a lot of upward mobility. But yeah, if you want to get into the true elite, you want to get up in that 99th percentile, then what he's saying, I, I would say, is correct. Right. You have to be willing to to take a chance. You have to be willing to gamble. And that's where it comes down to a lot, a lot, a lot of thinking, right? You have to be willing to look at the world uniquely. You like to get into the 99th percentile. It's like you're, you're throwing out the cookbook. You're saying, all right, I'm going to try and have to, I'm going to try and figure this out from scratch. And that means you got to uniquely analyze the world. You have to look at it from a perspective no one else has and find some truth in it. And figure out how to monetize that. And that's that's hard. That's a difficult thing to do. To say something that other people haven't said. To see something that other people haven't seen. Or at least see something that other people haven't seen and execute on it in a way in which they haven't. But I don't know if most people are called to that or even capable of doing it. Right? Like it's, it's something that's... If you've got that capability, you probably already know it. And you're probably already hungry and starving for it and, and you know, cert, like working at it, at least internally, nonstop. And at some point, your execution will have to line up with it. And what I would say is that, you know, you look at the, he, he you know, makes the point about how, like, you know, these, these super successful people, how they actually live their lifestyle and stuff like that. And very few of them are, uh, appear to be the paragon of self-discipline and stuff like that. But I would say that that all that discipline stuff, you know, like the the morning routines, the diet, the, you know, all these like habits and shit like that, like I would say that's what actually lets you really enjoy your success. Because if you just get there by being a pure workaholic, you just get there by trashing your body, working insane hours, like you're yeah, you might be more successful, but are you even enjoying that success? You know, you, you, you look at people who are massively rich and stuff like that, but they're clearly unhealthy, right? Like that's, I, I don't know. I don't know. To me, that doesn't, I don't want that. <laughs> I don't want that at all. And so it's like, they are different things. Like the the self-discipline stuff, your, your daily habits and that kind of thing that help you perform at a high level. They're not necessarily necessary if you are just, doubling down on that contrarian idea, right? You could you could be a Bill Gates and look like you're pre-diabetic and be massive, massive trillionaire or whatever the heck he is. Uh, billionaire? Trillionaire? Is, is he a trillionaire? I don't even know. Uh, at some point, like once the numbers get so big, it's like it, all, it almost becomes uh, unfathomable of how much money they have. But, you know, it's... You want to really, what I think what you really want, you don't want to be more successful than 99% of people. You want to feel like you are living out your mission. And you want to feel like you are proud of the man that you are being. And in order to do that holistically, you do have to look at your whole life. You do have to look at how you're doing things. And, you know, he's talking about how I used to do these things. Well, I would assume he probably doesn't do them anymore. Right, he does. He doesn't. He doesn't wait. Start every day at 11 a.m. with a Reese's cup and a Red Bull. He probably still enjoys them. You know, 
they're enjoyable things <laughs> and you should enjoy things. And I, I would say the discipline around enjoyment becomes even more important once you have the money to get whatever the heck you want. Otherwise, you know, speaking of Bill Gates, you might end up, you know, what was it, 36 times at Epstein's Island, <laughs> okay? Like, you have, if you don't want your success to destroy you, then the discipline aspect is very, very important. But that's, the discipline isn't necessarily what's going to give you that contrarian success, you know, outside of the discipline to execute on the idea, right? So, it's a, it's a cool point. It's an interesting point, but I think you got to add that nuance to it. Otherwise, he's basically just doing the same thing that those 99% of people are doing is that they're, they're missing the, the context of what real success looks like for you. And so, yeah, that's, that's kind of my take on that. What do you think of that, Pete? You know, I would make the argument that if you want to be really, really successful. You know, uh, Perry Marshall talks about this star principle thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of what Mark is hitting on here is he's saying, you got to be number one in a growing market that basically doesn't exist yet. Yes. And that's what you got to make the market. You have to like make that market pretty much. Yeah. You invent it. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So you can do that, but you can also just be number one. Like, for example, uh, a buddy of mine, his dad just sold his landscaping business and it was the biggest landscaping business in the Midwest. And so millions and millions and millions of dollars, you know, he was number one in that industry. Right. So he did all right. Now, like you said, what kind of people are willing to dedicate their entire life? I mean, there's Alex Ramosi points this out. There's some Chinese guy who makes concrete and he's a multi-billionaire. Do you think he's passionate about making concrete? No, he's passionate about making tons of money. <laughs> right. So you got you can be that kind of guy, or you can be the kind of guy who exactly like what you just said is focused on finding how can I bring the most value to people in a way that's you know that resonates with me. Yeah, and, and it's so, like it's also too. It's like again coming down to your definition of success. So for me, I would rather sacrifice some money to live a lifestyle I love. I would rather sacrifice some money to do the kind of work that I'm most passionate about. And so if I'm having an insane amount of fun while also being relatively financial, financially successful, you know, I'm comfortable, I can buy all the things I want, I can take care of my family, et cetera. Um, to me, that's, that's elite success, all right? I'm, I may not be making 12 figures, you know, but I could be making more than enough for me. And don't get like suckered into the money as a measuring stick thing. Yes, it is important. Money has a lot of power. It affords you a lot of opportunity, a lot of comfort, and a lot of uh, ability to do good in the world. But it's not everything. Um and so it's like you got to balance these priorities within yourself and figure out how much do these things work for you. I mean, you know, there's people out there who are, I've seen them before. It's like, you know, <laughs> there are guys, and I don't know these people intimately or anything, but I, I see people do stuff like this. Like I see guys running like their little, um, you know, food stand on a corner, their little mobile food truck selling like hot dogs and sandwiches and shit like that. And they're like a community staple. Everybody freaking loves them. They seem like they're having a blast. They're in there you know, cranking their music, singing while they're making their food, handing it out to people. Like, do I think that guy is making seven figures? No, probably not. Is he like pr- more happy than most of the guys lining up to buy his food? Probably. <laughs> right. So just get real, real with yourself about what it is that you feel called to, because that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. We've all got an instinctual calling to something. Some people are instinctually called to be you know, top dog in Wall Street or real estate or industry or technology or whatever it is. But a lot of people aren't. Most people aren't because you got to be a certain kind of weirdo to do that thing. But everyone's a certain kind of weirdo. And just figure out how that your unique quirk, your unique uh, differentiating factors can be aligned to make your most satisfying blend of lifestyle and reward. And if you do that kind of work, um, it could take you all different kinds of paths. All your discipline can take all different shapes and forms. But at the end of the day, if you don't like it, doesn't matter really. You know who cares how much money you got if uh, you're not happy. So. Try and take it all into consideration. Yeah. 
and you know off of that weirdo's point i don't exactly admire sid vicious but i think he did say once that uh weirdos tend to congregate <laughs> yeah it's very true and so find your weirdos and you'll get where you're trying to get 10 times faster 100%. anyway all right the next thing i wanted to talk about today was this clip from christina p who said uh well Leonardo DiCaprio's dating style is actually more humane than you might think. So here's why she says that. So just for context, Leonardo DiCaprio, he dates, he dates like supermodels until they turn 25 and then he dumps them. Right. So seems to be the trend. Yeah. So let's see what she says. You know, I feel like Leo has a reputation for dating young models, right? Like 19 and then he dumps them at 25. Yeah. That's their lifespan. And then he, everybody knows, Hey, 25, we're done. And a lot of people criticize him for this. Now, I have a theory that it's actually the most humane thing he can do. Why? Here's why. He likes banging young chicks. They like banging rich, successful actor Leonardo DiCaprio. World famous, iconic World famous, actor. iconic actor. So guess what? He's like, listen, little one, I'll bang you for like five years. I'll introduce Which you. Which is to, a good run. It's a perfect run with him. You'll go on my yachts. We'll go international travel. We'll stay at the Ritz. And I'll introduce you to all these other rich, single, gross, older guys. Mm-hmm. I'll release you back into the world when you're 25. So mm-hmm. you're still young enough to get your meat hooks into one of these old, disgusting, rich guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you can still have babies and still have a life. And I think that's actually really humane of him. That's a, that's an interesting take. Uh, I think that there's there's some valid there's some validity to what she's saying, right? Like, because it's uh it's tough for a woman when uh, she gets dumped at age thirty, right? Like, it all of a sudden her, you know, sexual market value, as it were, has gone down considerably, especially in the eyes of you know rich successful men, because you know these guys the guys who are the multimillionaires, etc. Yeah, they. They want to get the the hot young arm piece and whatnot. And I'm sure there's uh, plenty of such guys out there who are willing to take Leonardo DiCaprio's seconds. They might actually relish the idea, uh, which weird to me, but uh, I'm sure it's true, <laughs> at least uh, at least for some of them. And so, yeah, I, in a in a world where sexuality has no deeper meaning then there yes there's a humanity to his his actions but you know what i'm more interested about is like is this good for leo i'm not going to pretend to know what's good for leo i mean he he knows his own self you know he's got his own goals desires interior life etc but what i know about myself is that what has truly been fulfilling in my life like the the true the things that really just kind of warm me up and and fill me with joy, number one thing, my daughter, okay, my daughter, hands down, I'm I'm obsessed with her. Like there's nothing like the joy, and anyways the the challenge of being a parent, but really the, the joy absolutely outweighs it. And to 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 raise a child with someone you deeply truly love, I mean that's that's the heart of everything. And you hear people say this is it's almost a cliche. Um, but man, it's some good stuff. And so to me, it's like I, I see Leo kind of hamstringing himself a little bit. Unless like maybe his plan is like, hey, I'm just going to keep this up till I'm like 60 or 70 or, or whatever. And then maybe I'll produce some offspring and then go through all that. Maybe. Maybe that's what he's going to do. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, <laughs> I know he's a he's a hyper environmentalist and I don't really follow him closely, but usually those types are kind of against procreation. They believe it's it's wrong to bring another human into the world. They're, they're, in many ways, hyper-environmentalists are kind of like anti-human reproduction because they just see it as, why would I produce more greedy little mouths to consume the resources of Mother Earth, sacred Mother Earth? Uh, and so maybe he just actually doesn't value procreation, uh, which to me is, is a sad thing. Uh, I don't know if he's sad. I don't know if he's happy. I don't know anything about the guy. But for me, wishing the highest levels of happiness on to the average man, it would be to have a loving family. I don't think there's anything better. <laughs> but then again, I've never been a multi-millionaire you know, millionaire 
actor famous person so who knows maybe he's got something that uh i just will never understand but my intuition tells me that uh if he knew the kind of joy that i had access to simply being married to a woman that i love now for um almost nine years nine years this august and having a beautiful little little girl uh if he could get a taste of that, if I could bottle up a little bit of that and like give him a little hit at a party, and he'd be like, holy shit, what is that? What's that drug? Oh my God, I would, I'll give you millions of dollars for that. It's like, if he could if he could have a taste of that, I think he would trade this behavior in, in a heartbeat. But what do I know? Uh, just my take on it. But uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting conversation, at least. It is, you know. You, you see these guys who Kurt Cobain themselves, you know, and they have it all. Yeah. And, uh, it, it really makes you wonder. I, I think, I think he would be happier, but who knows? Well, I guess we'll have to leave that to him, Mark. Yeah. I guess we'll have to leave maybe that to he'll, him. I'm sure he'll see this since we're, you know, the most popular podcast in the world. Uh, well, soon yeah. to be, and I think he'll, uh, we'll, we'll get it to him and, uh, I'll, uh, we'll change his mind. We're coming for you, Joe. <laughs> we're coming yeah. for you. Yeah exactly all right so the next thing i wanted to show you today is uh a guy by the name of brentley experienced a dramatic and probably unexpected shift in his cravings while on an extreme weight loss journey here's the story this is almost never talked about i no longer get excited for the same snacks now i get legitimately excited when i see evian in a grocery store yeah i, I no longer get excited for donuts and stuff because i'm like I, I just know it's gonna make me sick so yeah it's just not gonna make me feel good. When you start to eat healthier, healthy food begins to taste better. There are so many people who want to become healthier and clean up their diet, but think, I don't wanna give up cake, I just love cake too much. And here you have Brentley, who is down 43 kg since he started losing weight, getting excited over bottled water. As I lose weight and get healthier and dive more and more into this journey, where I'm getting better and making these better decisions for myself, both psychologically and physically, I find myself craving different foods, you know? In the old days, I used to eat like a monster, a crazy person. I used to down two packs of Oreos, two bags of chips, a whole bunch of soda, like a whole 12 pack of soda every day. And it was crazy, it was unreasonable. And as I find myself getting more and more into physical fitness and stuff like that, I find it easier and easier to make the correct decisions. Yep, that's the way it works. Conditioning, baby. It's like what you adapt yourself to doing, um, your brain eventually starts to crave. Uh, kind of like a, a side example of this is, uh, have you ever seen the documentary My Octopus Teacher? My Octopus Teacher, no. No, okay. So it's it's a great documentary. It's really interesting. Uh, it's about this this dude who goes and, you know, he kind of seems like he has almost like a, a mental breakdown a little bit and he moves back to his home town of like somewhere in South Africa. It's like on the right on the coast, like literally like right on the water. And he just like gets back into swimming in that ocean every day. It's kind of like insane. And he, and he starts filming it eventually. And uh, he's talking about like, and eventually he finds this octopus and, you know, it has this whole big story that uh, he uh, documents. And it's great documentary. Definitely check it out. But pertinent to this conversation is he talks about getting into that water and that water is very cold. And he says, like, at first, it, you know, it almost feels like it's taking his breath away. You know, it feels like he's, you know, it's, it's extremely uncomfortable. Um, after a little while, though, you know, he starts to adapt to it. Um, and then he said after about a year, eventually his body starts to crave the cold. And this is, this is what happens, right? Like, anyone who's gone from not being fit to being more fit... They know this feeling like this is something I've experienced more recently in uh, like running, right? Like I'm a, I'm a terrible runner. I've always been a terrible runner. Uh, I'm still a terrible runner. I'm just slightly less terrible. But like what I found is that after I started doing it consistently, my body would like itch for it. It would want it. It would want to go out and get that run, get that runner's high. And same thing happens for for food, right? Like for me, I, I've made a shit like during Lent, you know, we just had Easter and uh so during Lent, I did no sweets, and I've, I've done that, you know, a bunch of times. And usually, like, the first couple of weeks, I'll have, like, a couple of nights, usually toward the weekend when I would have, you know, my junk food and stuff like that, where I'd be like, oh, 
oh, I'm dying. I just want to eat like uh, pizza and cookies and uh, I'm going to die. Um, but after a couple of weeks, I don't care. It's easy to say no. Um, and what I pretty much focused on this Lent was eating a lot of meat and fruit. And toward the end of Lent, I... I just started craving fruit. I just loved it. You know, I'd like go to the grocery store and before it's like you go to, I would go to the grocery store. It's like produce section, eh, boring. Um, and I would just kind of walk past it. But now it's like, I want to stop, you know, I'm like testing the, holding the produce, like feeling, like, Ooh, this fruit feels nice. Oh, just like sneaking like some, some grapes and some blueberries to check the quality quality and stuff like that. And it's like, uh, you know, my, my brain kind of starts to crave it. And so this, this will happen with anything anything if you give it the appropriate level of attention and the trick for this is doing that being able to put yourself in a psychological state where you are willing to invest getting over that initial adaptation hump and there's a bunch of things you can do to do this one you got to have like a vision for why you're doing it's like a strong you know reason um you know you got to have the right self-talk around it but other things too is like get some accountability join a group you know do a challenge like it's it's kind of a meme today to to do some kind of health cleanse or some new fad diet and that sort of thing and in general super extreme stuff like that isn't the key to sustainable change for most people but it can be really powerful to have a period where you get to experience this because once you feel it once you know that that's what happens is it takes so much of the fear and resistance out of the process because when someone first starts this kind of adaptation, um, there's kind of this terror that comes up. It's like, oh shit, it's like, am I going to feel these cravings for forever? Like, this is something I see a lot with guys who are trying to quit porn is that in the initial stages, they're like, oh my God, I'm just dying for some porn right now. They just feel these withdrawal symptoms and it really sucks. Um, and if you'd make the mistake of then just assuming that that discomfort will continue on into infinity, then you're not going to follow through with it. You're never actually going to get past that adaptation phase. You're never actually going to taste the sweetness on the other side of realizing, wow, I, I can crave not porn, but a clean life. I can I can crave one of where the, I'm pursuing real fulfillment, real intimacy, real connection, and I'm not constantly just like drugging myself into some sort of like dopaminergic high. So. Yeah, it's what he's talking about. It's a real thing. It's very important to understand. And so it's like I would ask you to to analyze any part of your life where you feel like you're just hope, hopelessly hooked on something and have a real conversation with yourself about whether or not you would want to go on a challenge like this. Usually it's going to have to be like for something like really huge, like like a porn addiction or a drug addiction. You're probably not going to feel you may not feel the the full kind of freedom till maybe around like. 90 days or so, maybe even a little bit longer, depending on how intense your, you know, addiction is. But for lesser things, you know, you can, you can feel a lot quicker. You can feel it in, you know, 20 days, 30 days, that kind of thing. Um, for some things, it's going to be even quicker than that. So you go two weeks without, you know, one of your favorite junk food treats. Uh, eventually you're just going to be like, eh, whatever. I see it. I don't need it. <laughs> right. So consider that. It's under embrace the power of your mind, embrace your capacity for change because you're, you're not trapped in anything. You just got to be willing to face some short term discomfort to unlock some really incredible long term rewards. I saw your email about the running and uh, that that really inspired me because I'm, I've been the exact same way where I'm terrible at running. I hate running, but I need a ton of sleep. And I saw your email on that. And you were saying how when you started running, you started needing less sleep and stuff like that yes that's but that's curious it's crazy uh i forget what the, the exact numbers is I, I calculated it but it was something like two and a half hours a week of like running gave yeah. like granted me something like almost like the 27 hours of enhanced focus and productivity because i was able to finally like get up in the morning i was able to have kind of like sustained energy throughout the day um and it just gave me so much more usable time because of how much energy and focus and how much less sleep was required and so yeah like these kinds of things they the the payoffs can be really really massive if you're really starting to to measure them starting to quantify them um and you know for example like a guy who learns how to love healthy food if you were going to put that 
over a week. All right. Like this guy who was just on here talking about it. Clearly he had uh, a serious eating problem, uh, uh, eating disorder, like, you know, like binging and stuff like that. If you were going to compare like his healthy food adapt adapted state to his previous one, we're talking thousands of calories within one week, yeah. a thousand, like many thousands of calories swing in his, his behavior. And so it's like, this kind of stuff, it's it's not just like, oh, you take the penny and you double it every single day. It's like, no, it's it's huge from the beginning. And then you just look at that over this cor- course of a life. You know, it's, it's what do we even call it? Like a, a quantum leap, if we're going to get new age about it. It's, it's insane. So <laughs> don't be afraid of this kind of stuff. With you in the running, that was only two and a half hours a week. Did I hear that right? Yeah. So that's, it's like a little bit, of, if, if I did it a little bit every day, then I'd be golden. Cause I think part of the resistance to me doing that is like, I gotta be David Goggins and I gotta go run for four hours. You know what I mean? But if I just go out and I run for 10 minutes or whatever, man, I'm going to do that. Yeah, you should do it. Do that. I would recommend probably like two shorter runs and then like one, like 40 to 50 minute run. Uh, try it like that, like two half hour runs, maybe, you know, start two half hour runs or two 20 minute runs. And then like one longer one and, uh, go at a slow pace. doesn't need to be insanely hard. Uh, you do that for a couple of weeks, all of a sudden you're going to be feeling way different. I can pretty much guarantee it. Good, good, good. Cause I, I sit too much. So yeah, that's like, I need to do something. Yeah. All right. The next thing I wanted to show you was from healthy gamer and he talks about how to make life as effortless as a video game. So this is what he has to say about this topic. If you're good at a video game, people will look at you and will say, wow, that is so amazing. You must work really hard to be good at the the video game. It looks so effortful. But when you're good at a video game, you actually don't expend a whole lot of effort. It's actually easy for you, right? But the question is, why is it easy for you? Because you understand. You understand the mechanics of the game. You understand the meta of the game. The more that you understand, the more easy things become. And this is the key thing about cultivating detachment. This is what the yogis figured out, is that if you want to live an easy life that is also happens to be like more productive, then you need to actually start with awareness. Because as long as we are numb to stuff, and as long as we don't understand how things work, we can exert all the effort in the world, and it's going to yield very few returns. If you're good at a vid- um, sort of, I, I sort of agree with the point, uh, kind of not totally. So like y- your life's not going to necessarily feel like a video game. Um, maybe like at points it can. And I think after a certain level of, uh, personal development, assuming there's no massive shifts in the landscape of your life, uh, then yes, you can pretty consistently live in that state. You know, it's like, and I'm sure there's some people who have achieved a certain level of personal and spiritual development where it's like, hey, the world could go to like, you know, fallout level, like post-apocalyptic dystopia and still be living their best life. Okay. I'm sure there's, there's some, some people out there like that, but for the most part, that's going to be a a very high order. You're going to be, you're talking about years, not decades of personal development work to do that. And I think he's kind of painting it a little bit unfairly because like video games are easy and enjoyable to engage in because they're engineered to be easy and enjoyable to engage in. Um, even the, the challenge level itself is engineered. And so it's like when you understand the way the brain works, like uh, how it re- releases dopamine and stuff like that, video games, that's what they're designed to do. They're designed to give the appropriate level of challenge so that you can always do it and then you can reach that next level. You can get that dopamine hit. Life is not engineered like that, okay? Certain certain periods of your life, there will not be that easy gap for you to cross. There will not be that, that you know, <laughs> literally engineered distribution of rewards and challenges that lets you kind of smoothly navigate it, okay? What you're going to need to do is you're going to have to not just be aware Okay, being aware doesn't do it. A lot of times, being aware can actually really screw people up. Like uh, I've heard this, people talk about this all the time. It's like, oh, the key to uh, overcoming your addictions or the key to improving your life is it's just awareness. It's like, no, it's not just awareness. It has to come down to being able to leverage that awareness 
to find those solutions with less effort. And yes, awareness is a key component to that, but it won't actually get you there. So like, you know, bringing it back to porn, as I often do, um, there's like guys out there who are, you know, talk about quitting porn and stuff. And it's like, oh, you just got to become more aware, just become more aware. And the problem is that'll just make you more aware of the shitty situation. If that's all you've got, it'll just make you more aware of the fact that, hey, you've got a craving right now and you're currently in a state of discomfort. And becoming more aware of your discomfort in and of itself doesn't get you anywhere. Eventually, that awareness must, you must use that awareness to extract a system to solve the problem. And so as if you don't do that, if you don't actually discover that methodology, that way to beat the level, then the awareness doesn't do shit for you. It just actually makes your life worse because you become more aware of how you're you're struggling. So you've got to take it all the way. You gotta you you gotta really recognize that awareness is the first step, then you need a system. And that system, it can take multiple iterations. And those iterations, they aren't necessarily going to be spaced in a way and provide rewards and breakthroughs at a pace which is satisfying in the same way that a human-designed video game will do for you. But what you can eventually develop is what I call meta-mastery. It's like the mastery of mastery. It's like you can think of it almost like meta-learning. Tim Ferriss' book... um, uh, what is it, the, the, the four-hour chef kind of gets into this topic and, in my opinion, only really scratches the surface on a very practical level. It doesn't really get too heavily into the emotional and cognitive levels of it all. But you can, you can, <clears throat> excuse me, you can actually build that meta skill of developing skills. And when you have that, well, then you can enter into awareness of a situation of a problem and you can become very good at finding the solution. And once you have that down, I think that's really the master key for um, living your life as a video game where you've you've mastered the problem solving uh, methodology. And it's not just problem solving on the logical side of things of like, oh, here's the solution because there's so many places in our life where we're struggling and we know what we're supposed to do, but we can't get ourselves to do it, right? So it's not just, you, you got to have that logical understanding of, of finding the path, but you also need to have that understanding of how you work, of how to actually get yourself to execute, to follow through, to actually solve the thing, right? And so those are that's that's beyond just mere awareness in my opinion and it's it's a very specific set of uh self-knowledge and you know mechanics like understanding your human nature, understanding your uh biology, understanding your true drives, your true desires, learning how to to navigate emotional resistance and this kind of thing. And that's really what I'm most fascinated in. But if you can get that kind of stuff down, you know, you, you get the, the core of mastery mastered, then everything starts to become like video games. Uh, and, and it's just a matter of like, which games do you want to play? So, you know, I think he's on the, the, the right track, but I think it's a, an overly simplistic answer. That's awesome. All right. The next thing I wanted to show you, uh, this woman is in terrible fear. She's shaking and she is speaking to Twitter. I wonder what she could be speaking about. Let's find out. Yeah, I saw this one. I'm literally shaking right now because I just had a man approach me in a parking lot and it went fine. And I'm going to tell you why it went fine and how to address it because it was in a book I read. And it didn't go fine, guys. This is how you're supposed to address it, but it scared me. I'm literally, I'm literally shaking. So this guy, I am a alone with my son by myself, a woman and a male approached me in a parking lot. He's like, excuse me, miss, and I don't know why in the hell he was approaching me or what he was trying to do. And before he, I mean, he was probably 30 feet from me when he said, excuse me, ma'am. And I turned around and I literally yelled at him and I said, do not approach me. And he like immediately started going in the other direction. And I just kept saying it over and over and over. I said, do not approach me, do not approach me. And he of course like got like, what the f like he started cussing and yelling like what what's your problem and i and i looked at him and he started he actually then crossed a couple cars down from my car and he didn't come anywhere near me he crossed a couple cars down from my car and was like what's continuing to cuss and say what's your problem and i said you do not approach women in a parking lot i just kept saying do not approach me you do not approach women in a parking lot like yelling it no male 
No male should ever approach a woman in a parking lot, ever. Should, no male should ever approach a woman in a parking lot. And if a male does approach you, you need to turn around and use the strongest voice that you can possibly use with them. Don't be polite. They need to literally screw off. No male should be approaching you in a parking lot. Uh, okay. How brave. How brave. Um, okay. <laughs> so here's my read on this situation. Two potential ways I think it could be going. One is that she's got PTSD of some sort. Okay. You know, mm. there's a chance that she's had something bad happen to her, you know, like a man approaching her, doing something to her, like, you know, that kind of stuff happens. And this, this is so, uh, in my opinion, kind of unhinged of a response that, uh, it would make me think that that's, that's a possibility. And I have compassion for people who have that kind of stuff, like, cause it's, it's serious. And if that's the case, well, she needs, she probably needs some therapy. Um, maybe probably a lot of therapy. Uh, but you know, in that, if that's the situation, then what we're really looking at here is someone, uh, sharing their, I don't know if you would call it mental illness, but let's call it mental wounds, uh, publicly, you know, internet's a weird place. That's okay. People can do that. The other side that it could potentially be is just like her looking for content and, you know, just her being crazy and wanting to get attention. That 100% happens as well. And, you know, it's like when I see stuff like this, it's like, well, this is probably like the fourth take. And she started the video like eight times. Like my hands are literally shaking. This guy. Oh, wait, hold on. Do it again. My hands are literally shaking right now and just like, like, you know, doing it like that. Um, and if that's the case, then more power to you, you crazy person. Um, you know, that's, that's insane. Like for all she knows, like, like for all I know, like the dude saw, like she says she was with her son. So maybe her son just dropped something and he was like, Hey, you dropped that. You just want to tell her that she dropped something, you know, and this guy wasn't like, he didn't like sneak up behind her and start hitting her. He didn't, he didn't, he wasn't like cat calling her. She said like, he was like 30 feet away and said, excuse me, ma'am. Okay. Yeah. Like that's, that's not aggressive at all. All right. That's not aggressive even in the slightest bit. Um, so I don't know. It's like, if, if we're living in a, if, if she lives in a world psychologically where no man can speak to another woman from 30 feet away in broad daylight in a public parking lot, then, uh, she's, she's living in a strange world that I do not want to normalize. Now, obviously guys should be respectful. Guys shouldn't, you know, be creepy. They should be, you know, uh, aware of like how women can perceive the approach of men, particularly if, uh, you know, it's the, the, the circumstances in which they are, are doing it. Okay. Yeah. hundred percent. But this is so over the top and, uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure she's like a, a, a social, like she's got like a, a, I don't even know what kind of following she has, but I know that this is the, like she makes content. She's a content creator. She's not just like an average woman, like sharing her stuff. And so it's like, we gotta be careful of, uh, allowing this sort of behavior to become our norm it's right for people to call this stuff out as crazy uh it's just it's just insane um i mean again if it's ptsd god bless her hopefully she gets help and everything like that but uh if it's not then come on lady knock it off knock it off get real and like it's, it's like there's, there's there's better ways to do it Right. There's, there's much, but like you just, just ignore. And if he, as soon if he like, at least, you know, if, if he's like, there's, there's ways to do it like differently. Like, Hey, you know, I, I'd prefer you just stay over there or, you know, you know, I, I'm not interested, etc. To just start screaming at him. Like that's, that's almost dangerous for the guy in some ways, because who knows what kind of attention you're going to grab? Who knows what kind of like white knights you're going to like have to like deal with? Like you're going to activate the white knights. Like, oh, is he attacking you, ma'am? And then, like, start some kind of altercation. Seriously. It's just like, let's take it down a notch until there's something that is exposed as being out of order, right? And this, and under this circumstance, zero things were out of order other than her behavior, in my opinion. Uh, so, 
I don't know. The world we live in today is crazy. You know, <laughs> it's a literal man versus world moment. So be aware. And, you know, it's, it's also we didn't get to see the guy. OK, you know, if he was like a really good looking put together guy, um, would mm. you have the same reaction? I don't know. Um, one of those things we're, we're not certain about, but I, I think we actually if have he was wearing thing. a three piece suit. Yeah, if he was wearing a three piece suit or whatever. Uh, yeah, well. Don't That's know. the trick. You just got to wear a three-piece suit, guys. That's all. Have you seen uh, in the UK they're proposing a bill to imprison uh, cat callers for two years? That's also wild. That's fucking wild. Um, yeah. Now I'm not. I don't know. I'm. Not, do do I? Do guys take it too far? Hundred percent. Do guys make women feel unnecessarily uncomfortable in the street sometimes? Yeah. You know, I've got a, I've got a pretty wife, you know, she, she's been in situations where like guys have been downright creepy to her. Um, and I don't like that. I don't like some guy doing that kind of shit to her. And yeah, it, it is wrong. And there's a certain line where it's, it's absolutely inappropriate. Um, is it two years in prison inappropriate? Like that'll fuck up a whole dude's life. Like, you know, imagine a guy he's, you know, they're, they're just going to introduce this bill and then you got guys who are um they've been living their whole life they see a beautiful woman and they're like mm, nice girl and they just keep walking okay like that's part of some cultures let's just be real it is and you can say it's bad you can say it's whatever is it two years in prison bad i don't know about that you know if you want to make it a fine okay i could deal with that I, i'm still kind of split on it like i think that uh gender relations are kind of messed up and if women really don't want to have if women really hate cat calling then sure yeah uh that's something that can be a, a discussion but we got to draw very clear lines about like when it's okay when it's not right because i know a lot of women who get quite a bit of an ego boost they actually feel good when they're cat called even if the and, and they even enjoy they relish the idea of like <sighs> but like on the inside they're like hmm I got attention. Exactly. <laughs> not all women. Okay. Not all women, but definitely some. Uh, and it's, uh, it's weird. It's like we, we're, we're completely trying to, what do we want to say? It's like sterilize the human sexual experience, which in some ways is completely understandable because there's so much danger uh, around sexuality, right? Like rape is a real thing. Sexual assault is a real freaking thing. And minimizing that as much as possible should be a top priority socially. But at the same time, if we completely castrate IRL sexual interaction between men and women, I'm not talking like, you know, intimately sexual. I'm just talking about like, hey, I think you're pretty kind of thing and, and signaling that to a woman. If we're going to completely burn that out of society, uh, that puts society in a weird position then it's like oh the only way to approach women now if i don't want to get arrested is scrolling like like swiping on a phone it's like i can't even approach a woman anymore because if i approach a woman she's going to start screaming at me to get away you can't approach me it's like wait shit it's like okay parking lots i can't approach a woman is it, is it okay to do it in a in a restaurant is it okay to do it in a bar uh like how, like, like the, the rules need to be laid out for men. If we're going to start putting the consequences at such an insanely serious level. Okay. Otherwise guys are just, they're just getting screwed then. And also women are getting screwed because they are losing out of opportunities to potentially find men that they might like. Okay. Like, like <laughs> it's a, it's a weird, weird situation that I, I, I think that people go immediately to the level of hysterics around and, uh, guys are going to continue to just opt out. Like so many guys, this is why they, they end up as chronic porn users and ignore women is because it's, it's a minefield out there actually figuring out how to approach women. Right. And it's, there's legitimate real danger. Okay. Like if you approach a woman and you, in that conversation, you let it be known that you find her attractive. Is that cat calling? Are you risking literal prison which could cause you to to lose your job you know it could cause you to 
you know, it causes a lot more issues that say you've got kids, you know, you're divorced or whatever, and you approach a woman and she like, you know, files these charges against you, you get jail time. Like, what's that going to do to your relationship with your kids, you know, to your custody, to, to all these kinds of things? Like, these are not trivial matters that you can just kind of, you know, slap some sort of half-baked idea upon to try and solve. Um, so it's... It's weird. Protect your side. Protect yourselves out there, guys. Uh, and in general, you know, I totally get it if you want to play it a little bit safer uh, around women. But at the same time, try and find the ways to not give up, to not go full MGTOW and just be like, ah, screw women. I'm just going to jerk off to porn. My wife is my sex doll kind of thing. Like, don't don't go that route because it's still there's still sane women out there despite all the crazy chicks you see on social media, there are. Uh, you just got to look for them in the right place, and apparently, be very careful if that place is a parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, it's true. All right, the last thing I wanted to show you today is uh, Dennis Prager and Jordan Peterson had a sit-down conversation with some other guys as well, and the topic of lust and porn came up, and it was a very interesting conversation, so I wanted to show it to you. All right, let's see. Uh, I'm a big Christian fan, but obviously Christianity and Judaism are not identical religions. Uh, and, and we have no equivalent that if you look upon another woman with lust, it's as if you have committed adultery with your heart. There's only one way to commit adultery in Judaism, and it's with a different organ. And I'm not being cute. I'm, I'm being very realistic. Uh, looking with lust is not a sin in Judaism. What's the stance on, porno what's the stance on pornography? So pornography, when I'm asked this question, you, just to you, put you on the spot, you the did way. indeed. Uh, okay, so my, my answer when it's raised on my radio show, I have a male female hour, and I'm very open about sexual subjects. I always ask if a wife calls me and says my husband looks at pornography. I, I, I found on his computer. I have one question: How is your in life of intimacy with your husband? Is it good? In other words, is the pornography in lieu of you or in addition to you? Mm -hmm. uh, and I know this is not a religious answer, and mm -hmm. I, I'm not even giving a religious answer. I'm giving mm -hmm. what I think is a moral and realistic answer. Men want variety. If pornography is a substitute for one's wife, it's awful. If it's a substitute for adultery, it's not awful. That's, that is my unpredictable well, answer. Well, there is a clinical rule of thumb that's akin to that, I would say. If you're trying to decide clinically whether someone's partaking in a habit, say use of alcohol, has reached the threshold of clinical significance, one of the things you do is ask the, the person you're assessing, now, is it interfering with your employment? Has it got you in trouble with the law? Is your family complaining? Does it stop you from doing other things that you should be doing? And so the judgment isn't the use of the forbidden substance itself. It's, it is in some sense consequentialist. And I'm not saying that that's an absolute, but it is a, it is a hallmark of clinical judgment. Interesting. So he didn't give a religious answer. He was trying to give a very pragmatic answer there around porno pornography. So it's like, hey, you're in a relationship with a woman. You know, you're married, I guess, in this context. You're married to a woman and you're using porn. And that's okay to do if you using porn keeps you from committing adultery. And to me, that sounds dumb. Um, and he seems like a smart guy. So, you know, like if we we're just going to substitute it for something else, it's like, is it okay for you uh, to just get hammered if that's what keeps you from getting like uh committing adultery is it okay for you to um you know do cocaine is it okay for you to engage in risky gambling is it okay for you to do you know xyz sort of escapist behavior because it keeps you from committing adultery um and i think that that's just like it kind of exposes this idea that like there there has to be a hierarchy of values to really figure out if something's okay or not. And you got to get down to the question of like, well, what, what do you believe your sexuality is for? Right? Like, what do you believe it is for? And, um, as far as I can tell, like I could be wrong. I don't, I'm not, I'm definitely no expert on Judeo sexuality, but in the Christian sphere, it's like everything is supposed to 
honor God. Everything you do is supposed to give glory to God. Um, and your sexuality has a particular uh, way to give glory to God, right? Like through essentially intimacy with your wife, you know, building that loving connection and then procreation on top of it. And so it's like if you, pornography does none of those things, um, it, it just, it's a completely selfish act that has very many negative consequences. And so it's like if a guy has intimacy issues with his wife, like could porn in the short term prevent him from committing adultery? Arguably, yes. But will it actually allow for him to repair that intimacy with his wife? I would say probably no. And in many cases, the use of pornography will just deepen that rift. It'll continue to disconnect him further. It'll allow him to ignore that issue and refuse to address it. And it can cause him to refuse to address it both in the practical sense of actually taking the, the time and energy and effort of, of figuring things out with his wife, but more on a personal level, it'll prevent him from learning how to become, um, what we say, master of his own passions. Right, like it, it, it robs him. Pornography robs a man of his personal evolution, learning how to sublimate his own sexual drives, and that is a superpower. You know, that's something that is uh, studied in many religions. It's this idea of, of transmutation, this ability to take your sex drive. If there's no authentic outlet for it in your immediate life, learning how to hold your sexual charge and not feel like you must expel it. It seems like he's operating in this framework where, yeah, if a man has a sexual charge, he's just got to get it out. He's just got to get it out. Um, and this is something I hear from a lot of uh, pro-porn, pro-masturbation kind of guys is that you got to dispel this poison from you. If not, it's going to make you go crazy. Um, and what I would say is that that's not true. You're simply weak. You actually, like, like I'm not saying this aggressively or judgmentally, uh, it's just factually, is like you can't hold your own sexual charge without tremendous amounts of discomfort. But the thing is, you could if you learn how to develop yourself. You learn how to hold that sexual charge. You create the, the belief system the, and the, you know, intellectual, emotional interface between, like, within yourself to actually hold that charge, circulate it, redirect it. All right. Like, and that's a very possible thing to learn. It's something that I've been teaching for years. And when you learn how to do that, like the, the value of that, both to yourself, to your spouse, to your family and to the world is tremendous. And to claim that it's like, okay to do that, I think is a very short, short sighted view of things. And it really leaves out the, the, the whole picture of like a man's on like, like what, what the real opportunity is when a man has unrequited sexual desire from his partner, okay? There's an opportunity to, oh, you can use that pain to drive you to actually fix things uh, with your relationship with your wife, and you, or you could use that pain as a uh, ability to charge yourself out, to improve yourself, to turn it into kind of like a weight, you know, a weight that you lift up and down, you exercise with, you exercise it to the point where you actually you become stronger. You get to the point where you can actually bear that load um, comfortably, right? Like you might think of it as like a heavy backpack. You know, the first time you put it on, it's like, oh, oh, my back aches. Oh, I'm going to die. Oh, I feel like this. I feel like I'm, this is, this is horrible. I can't do this. But eventually if you learn how to continuously hold that, you stop just putting it down, AKA, you know, seeking mindless release through pornography and masturbation. Eventually your, your internal constitution grows. It becomes far, far stronger to the point where it's like, oh yeah, I can, I can wear this backpack all day. And in fact, it makes me stronger. And, you know, when, when I'm not dealing with that burden, um, you know, there's no cravings or whatever. I'm actually an all around stronger, more focused, more aligned, more attuned individual. So yeah, I, I would say I have to disagree with, uh, Dennis Prager here, despite how wonderful his voice is. Dude's got a great radio voice. He does. So does sexual transmutation, does learning how to do that come before or after quitting a pornography addiction? Um, well, so quitting a pornography addiction, it's like, it, it kind of goes hand in hand, but there's, there's kind of a, a sink or swim sort of element to it at first. It's like, you need to, you need to be thrown into the waters a little bit first to even start orienting your organism to the task at hand. Like, so for example, um, when I first started training in kettlebell sport, um, there wasn't a, 
like my I, I had the the general technique down of how to do all the moves and things like that but there wasn't very much like focused technique work or anything like that uh, and I would always like talk about like oh well, my wrists hurt or oh this is uncomfortable or, oh the, the, the rack position sucks or whatever and he would just say he would just keep telling me keep doing it you know it's like there was a period where I just had to get reps in I had to actually spend time in that space of discomfort moving the bells you know over and over again until eventually my nervous system starts to identify like like and and, and be able to uh, understand the movements and as you build that awareness then you can start getting much more specific about you know the actual techniques employed and, and all of that sort of thing so there is this kind of initial learn how to just be in it so that you're not in a state of panic um but then once you're there yes you want to very quickly start developing some technique you want to start developing some uh understanding of how you do this and that's what i teach in my reforge man program is like here's what the self-talk looks like here's the habits specifically you want to set up you want to be doing this this and this this at this point at this point at this point and eventually it's going to lead to you having that strength to hold your sexual charge so if you're interested in that, you can check out, uh, you can learn a lot more by clicking the link below. Awesome. Well, that's all I got for this week. That was fun. We haven't done one of these for a while. Yeah. Yeah, it's been great. So yeah, hopefully you guys enjoyed the show. It's great getting to get out here and chat with you all again. Um, and yeah, if you want to find out more about how to quit porn, then make sure you check out the link in the description. I've got a, a full little masterclass on there for giving you the three secrets on how to do it. And uh, if you're interested, take it all the way, then you can check out my Reforge Man program. So that's what we got today, guys. Ooh, yeah. See you all in the next one.